Hey everybody, I'm Larry Little, and you're listening to Crossing the Line, my podcast where I talk with people about the moments in their life when they cross the line from leading with their head to leading with their heart. Today on the show, I'm having a fun conversation with a very interesting guest. His name is Barney Cohen. Barney opened a small record store when he was 26 years old and built it into the largest wholesaler of pre-recorded music in the world with over a billion sales. He's an incredibly interesting man. He's been around a long time. He understands common sense and, and, and what that means in, in leading and growing and building businesses. Uh, I, I am just excited to spend a little time with Barney. Got to pick his brain a bit, hear his story, hear how he grew up. He is a uh, wonderful example of, of what it means to truly be an entrepreneur and not only be an entrepreneur, but, but to use those skills to help others. And even today, he runs business support groups and those kind of things. You can find more about that in our show notes. But for now, let's jump into that conversation with Barney Cohen, business entrepreneur, right now. Well, this is special today because I have somebody that I admire. I, I You know, you can tell a lot about a person by watching them through the years. And I've watched Barney uh, Cohen through the years. And I've watched how he interacts with others and uh, my own my own family members and, and how he has led them and taught them and how he has a heart for teaching others, as we talked about in the in the intro. Barney, thank you so much for being here all the way from Seattle. Welcome to Crossing the Line. Thank you, Larry. It's good to be here. Well, it's good. It's good to have you. Listen, uh, today we're going to learn and we're going to talk. This man is incredible. He has an incredible story. This man has, uh, Barney, you've been around the block a time or two, haven't you? That's true. Well, we want to learn a little bit. Do you want to know about one portion on the block? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. We want, we want to learn as much as we can about the block. And so why don't we do this? Let's start, though, because obviously you've been a success and you are a success. But before that, let's start back when you were a child. I want to hear the Barney story back when you were, uh, you know, eight, nine years old. Take us back to where you grew up and what was it like a day in the life of, of Barney back in those days? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. So I'm a product of the Midwest. I'm a Missouri boy. But just barely, I lived on a street uh, that was next to the state line. So I could basically walk across the street and I was in Kansas. I was in a suburb called Overland Park, Kansas. So uh, uh, the, the dividing line between Kansas and Missouri, uh, south of the Missouri River was just a street called State Line Road. So I lived at the intersection of 72nd Terrace and, and State Line Road. And I walked across the street. I was in Kansas, but I did grow up in Missouri, which means I went to schools in the Missouri, Kansas City, Missouri school system. Um, a day in the life. Well, uh, things were a little bit different. I, I was born in 1946. So mm. if I uh, if you have me at eight or nine years old, we're talking 1953 or 1954. Uh I don't know that my parents encouraged it exactly, but I was very mobile and uh, wandered around a lot. Um, there was not a lot of rules about where I had to be when. We didn't have helicopter parents. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the 
street I grew up on was developed. And so it was a suburb. I mean, not a suburb, but a housing development. And there was a, a there was a house on every plot. But across the street in Kansas was an open field. It was used to be a farm. And uh, at the time I grew up, that field had almost no dwellings on it, one or two here or there. Uh, today, that's all filled in and all residential. All right. And uh, Kansas City, like most cities has grown up and out and uh and it's all that part of the city is all filled in now but i used to do a lot of uh, going out into the fields and playing around in the creeks and catching toads and uh you know just all the kind of things that a that an eight or nine year old boy would find interesting out in the world uh i played pickup games of basketball and um and some football uh, those were the two big sports that that i had some involvement in back at that age. I rode my bicycle everywhere. Kansas City uh, is a fairly large city geographically. It's spread out and uh, it's it's not an easy city to walk because the distances are long, but it's an easy city to bicycle. So I bicycled like everywhere. Uh, there, there weren't really any limits on where I could go on my bicycle. My parents trusted me. I had, I guess, good common sense and uh, sure. didn't seem to get into too much trouble. <laughs> well, so. Marty, talk to us about that a minute because you know the 1950s. You were born in '46 and, and grew up in in the late '40s and then the '50s. What what as you think back through parenting and how your parents parented you? Talk to us about. And this is just my own curiosity. I just want to know what what was different in parenting back then as what you see parenting is today. Well. Uh... My parents may not have been a perfect example. My dad, I think, was more typical than my mom. My my dad worked. My dad was a doctor, an MD doctor. Uh, this was back. Uh, he was a pathologist. So uh, back in those days, pathologists didn't work for themselves. They were private businessmen. He worked for a hospital. He was the director of laboratories at a hospital. And uh, uh, he worked all the time. And I mean all the time, seven days a week. Mm. We often didn't have even Sundays off. And uh, it was uh, it was unusual to see him. And um, one of the things I uh, habit I formed very early was um, I, I wanted to see my dad and he always came home pretty late. So uh, after I went to sleep uh, uh, in my bedroom, or, or tucked or you know I got tucked in I would get up and go downstairs we had a two-story house oh. and listen to the great big uh, the radio was the size of a chest of drawers I mean it was one of those radios that you know was a great big piece of furniture and I would curl up beside the radio and listen to uh, AM radio we didn't have FM back then there was no FM uh, listen to AM radio and at night you could get radio stations from all over the country uh, and mm. Mexico as well during the day you could only get radio stations that were within about 25 miles uh, but at night you could get these clear channel stations that came from a long way away so we could listen to um i could listen to you know sermons and you know gospels and and preaching out of texas and i could hear uh, <laughs> um, mexican music and uh, you know it's uh, you could hear just all kinds of stuff at night that you couldn't hear during the day. And often my dad would come home and find me asleep in front of the radio in our dining room and he would mm. carry me up to bed. Uh -huh. So um, uh, you asked me about 
I think one of the things that was unusual about my upbringing was the importance of music in my in my family. My dad had a tremendous interest in music, and a, he grew up in a family where music was a very big deal. And um, he was interested in what you'd call more probably more serious music, classical music. He liked opera, and he liked uh, he liked show tunes a lot. He liked Broadway shows, uh, and he also liked folk music and and uh, and um, this, that kind of stuff. So uh, very early, I grew up with a, a tremendous interest in music. I'm I'm Jewish, and one of the things that about many Jewish households is there's a um, you know a cultural expectation that you learn a musical instrument, and that was certainly true in my household. It was uh, it was. I'm sort of an unwritten requirement that I would play a musical instrument. And uh, I had an older sister and they tried to get her to play piano and it just never took. And they started me on piano and I didn't like. Talk to me about you're growing up. Let's say you're in high school. Who were you in high school? What was that like growing up in Kansas city, Missouri, right on the state line? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, again, I, I, I lived a life that was a little different than, um, than most of my peers. Um, uh, I was never a joiner. Uh, the only thing I joined of any consequence, I guess, was I was active in the youth symphony. So I, play, I, I played my musical instrument seriously, and I, I was in the youth symphony from, I guess, junior high school all through high school. And so that was, that was young. But the, the big differentiator for me, uh, uh, you, you know, I've left out, you know, I haven't <laughs> told you very much about all the stuff that happened to me. But um, I, uh, I, I got to the point where I wasn't doing so well in school. And it wasn't, I, it wasn't that I wasn't a good student in terms of ability. I certainly, in fact, that was part of the problem. I was probably, uh, you know, I was just basically very bored. And, and, and that, and that, became evident not in high school, but all the way back in elementary school. And uh, I think my parents had their hands full trying to figure out how to keep me busy and how to keep me from, uh, uh, you know, spending all my time on the street. And uh, when I I started going truant in in junior high, Mm. and um, uh, before it got very far, my dad said, well, this isn't going to work. And my dad decided that uh, for me, the only thing that would work would be, was to get me a job. So my my father arranged for me to start work in a record store in seventh grade. So you're about to see the pattern again. Uh, we see it time after time when we talk to these great leaders. They have a, a common denominator, and that common denominator is even though Barney was a, a strong-willed child, um, he, he said going truant, but a strong-willed child – this this uh, attribute rose to the top, and that attribute that we see over and over again is a strong, hard work ethic. Loved it. <laughs> so, uh, in seventh and eighth grade, I worked uh, after school and 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 during the summer. Uh, starting in ninth grade, I I started working in the record store during school hours as well as after school hours. And by 10th grade, I was working a, a full 40 hour a week in the record. Wow. By 10th so grade. By wow. 10th and 11th grade, I worked full time in the record store and my dad had to go to the Kansas city board of education to get a, a permission. But the, what we agreed with the Kansas city board of education 
was that I would take a certain number, what they called solids back then. Those were like, that's like English or math or, you know, science. Uh, and if I passed those, I could graduate uh, uh, and I wouldn't have to go to school uh, full time. And so by the time I graduated from high school, I had less academic credit than most of my peers uh, and less schooling. And I had the equivalent of basically five years of a full-time job. This is now interesting. (laughs) This is so I'm now I'm 18 years old and I've got five years experience. Uh, uh, Basically the last year I was a manager of one of the stores. So I was basically the manager of uh, one of these gals uh, record stores. My goodness. Wow. um, So, so what happened next? You're out of school. Now you graduated high school. You're in this record store business. You love it. You're managing it. What happens? uh, So then I, I went, uh, so I was talking about how there's this program in my household. So the one of the items in the household that was a program was getting involved in music. And uh, the other big item was getting an education. So even though I didn't do well with school, I really, I was as educated as any other senior. And I didn't go on to college. I went to Antioch College, which is in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And it's well known in some circles. It's not it's not a big name, prestigious school in terms of academics, but it was well known for its work study program, uh, which um, which I really was interested in. Uh, and it's in a small town in Ohio. And I get there, and there's no record store. And I went, well, this isn't any good. So I talked to the um, talked to the manager of the bookstore of the college, and I said, would you let me? you know, open up a little section of records. And he said, sure, you know, as long as it isn't going to cost us anything, let's, let's, you know, put a section of, of, uh, of records in here. And so I, uh, I, in effect, managed that store <laughs> for another five years uh, where I just, uh, uh, and on top of that, at Antioch, you had to work for three months and then study for three months. So you, it was, they called it cooperative education. On the quarters that I was gone from the college campus doing this cooperative jobs, I managed the record store by a, from afar by using printouts of what they had sold and doing the ordering and stuff. And I hired a, a person to sort of take care of the section while I was gone. Marty, you were innovative. You were leading remotely before there ever was such a thing. It's amazing. Exactly. Uh, I never, ever once had the inkling that I would make it my life's work. Uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, one of my favorite uh, questions is, you know, what am I going to do with my life, with the rest of my life? And I, I think most people ask that question at some point. Uh, but I think everybody should be asking that question almost every day. Hey, what a great leadership moment he just shared with us. Ask yourself the question every day. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? Because the truth is, nobody knows how much of the rest of this life we really have to live. What a great question to challenge us to uh, be our best every single day. I find I still ask that question, and I still take the question seriously. I've got a certain amount of time left on Earth, and I'd like to use it well. Wow, that's brilliant! Now, now that's a that's a nugget, isn't it? Uh, I, you know, as young as you are, you're saying, "Hey, I've got a certain amount of time left, and I want to use it well." That and you have, and your life story uh, is an example of that. So, here we are. We're we're ten years experience. You've graduated college. Walk us through what happened next. This is where it starts to get good. <laughs> 
yeah, well, I got married in my fourth year of college, and both my wife and I wanted kids, uh, and we had no idea what we were going to do. I had majored in elementary education so my 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 what i ended up with besides these all these years of um of working in a record store i had uh, a teaching credential from the state of ohio so i could you know i could teach in an elementary school uh, i concentrated on first and second grade i i thought that the um way to make the world a better place was to teach people how to read. I felt like that's what mm. separates people who do well and people who don't do well in life is literacy. So I thought if if uh, if I could help people read, uh, that would be, you know, a really good thing for the world. And um, Wow, I love that. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I, the only other thing I had any experience in was Printing. I had three. Uh, three of my co-op jobs were in the printing industry, so I I'd learned a fair amount about how to run a printing press and how to do some you know design work and call composition. You know, a, a compositor person who made up the. This was back in the age where um, print was done on what's called hot type with lead, and and uh, you had to put it all together uh, before you put it into a printed page. So, um, so that that's what I had. Uh, that was the experience I had getting out of college, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. And uh, I took a you know just jobs here and there. My wife and I moved to Portland, Oregon, and I worked in a print shop, and she worked in a uh, in a uh, in a, a place that made uh, leather coats. So she was a seamstress, a, a seamstress, a professional seamstress. Uh, that lasted for about a year. Um, we decided to move back to Ohio, uh, uh, where, um, because uh, 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 my wife was having trouble getting all the credits she needed to graduate, and we just thought if we moved back to near where the college was, we would be able to finish that off better. And I, I took a job then at the uh, local newspaper. So that's my second year out of, out of college. I'm again working in a print shop at, an, at a newspaper. Uh, and when that was done, we decided to move to Kansas City where I grew up because I got a job offer at Hallmark Cards. So the likelihood is that I was going to be a, a good corporate citizen in a fairly large company. Kansas City is the home of Hallmark Cards. And I had I had printing experience, and I uh, and uh, they had a, a job opening that looked like it would be a good career, and it just sounded good to me. And so we moved to Kansas City, and my intention was to go to work for Hallmark Cards. How about and uh, <laughs> so uh, you know, it wasn't anything I felt called to do. It's just you know, I was just drifting through life. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I hadn't. I don't think anyone who's 21, 22, 23 has got a, just a really clear picture of exactly the way everything's going to turn out for him. How do you, how do you know? That's that right. Uh, but uh, fate sort of intervened. My wife was from Sacramento, and um, uh, shortly after we moved to Kansas City, uh, we had our first child, my son Joshua. And um, my wife's mother, who had promised to come out and be with us uh, when we had our, our, our first child, uh, couldn't come. And uh, we found out by 
phone that she was uh, very sick and uh, she had cancer and mm. she would would die very shortly thereafter. She she was not going to travel ever again. And mm. um, uh, we made the decision that we would move to Sacramento. Uh, and the reason for that was uh, my wife wanted her mom to, you know, to, sure. to see our son. Mm. Uh, so we did. And um, we got out to Sacramento and um, it, it, the, the news got even worse. We found out after we got out there that her dad also had a very serious disease and he was to die soon as well. He had Lou Gehrig's my disease. Goodness. So, <laughs> so both, oh, of my, um, uh, both of my step-parents died before they were 50. Wow. Uh, which goodness was really, really sad. Uh, but yeah. so here we are out in Sacramento and we had, uh, I had no real job prospects and I moved to Sacramento uh, at a time when we were in a recession. It was 1970. California was really hurting back then. Um, California's, Sacramento's largest employer was called Aerojet General. It was a large aerospace company and they had just gone bankrupt. Uh, Sacramento was just, you could not get a job anywhere. And on top of that, I discovered that California wouldn't hire me as a teacher because California did not accept other states' teaching credentials. Those were so, uh, hard days back then, weren't they, Barney? They were. It was, yeah. I mean, I didn't think, I mean, I was young. And so when you're young, what seems like it hard doesn't seem, you know, it doesn't seem hard. It just is what it is. But, yeah, you know, right. We, <laughs> we ate beans and rice and things like that. And, um, uh, but I did, and I had a hard time finding a job. So I took any job I could and I got a job in a mobile home factory in Woodland, California. And we moved to Woodland because I wasn't going to commute 45, 50 minutes every day each way. And um, uh, we moved to Woodland and a real small little house um, with my son and uh, and my wife, and uh, I started working in a mobile home, and we started pinching pennies. And uh, and the first thing I noticed in Woodland was there's no record store, and I went with. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you would notice. <laughs> uh, and back then we had Tower Records. A lot of people listening to your broadcast probably remember Tower Records, and. Um, uh, if you wanted to buy a record, you had to go to Sacramento to buy a record. And I went, well, this is ridiculous. So I didn't like working in a mobile home factory. And uh, I, I couldn't get it out of my mind that there wasn't a record store in town. And I kept saying to myself and to my wife, I know I can make a living selling records. And I'd be a lot happier doing that than working in a mobile home. And I, I just don't feel like we can move again. We got a young baby and we'd like to start a family and have more uh, probably a year into having moved there, once we, uh, once we, um, you know, once my wife's mom and dad had passed, and we'd sort of gotten past that, um, uh, I I decided I'm going to try to start a record store. Mm. So, how old were you? Um, well, I opened the record store in 1973, so I would have been 27 years when old when I opened it, and. Um, Probably was 26 years old when I decided to do it. All right. So so here you go. Entrepreneur, 27-year-old entrepreneur, Barney, opens his first record store. And was it a success? Did it did it do what you wanted it to do? What what happened? What was your experience that, that very first venture as an entrepreneur? 
Uh, well, it was a success, and yes, it did what it, I wanted it to do. Uh, my goals on day one were quite modest. I wanted to earn enough money so I could, um, could you know, pay the bills of my family and uh, and uh, earn a living for my family. Uh, there were some really wonderful things about it. It was very close to my house. I could walk to work if I wanted. Uh, it was a little less than a mile from my house um, or bicycle work or it was easy to get back and forth. Uh, so that was really nice. Uh, Woodland was a small town, about 28, 30,000 people, something like that. And so uh, uh, people liked the idea that I had opened a record store and I made friends in the community pretty quickly. Uh, I've always been uh, interested in people and I always like talking to people and, and uh, I, 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 I had a lot of experience waiting on the public. I, I knew how to do that and uh, I, I learned that you talk to people about whatever interests them and uh, if you make a friend, you make a customer and um, uh, and I, I, I just I, I had sort of a background in what you'd call service. So if somebody came into my store and wanted something then uh, and I didn't have it I would do whatever it took to, to get mm. that uh, for them and and uh, so word spread pretty quickly and I'd say within a year I was doing qu quite well uh, by quite well I mean uh, I, I borrowed money to open the store I didn't have the money to open it so I, I, I went around to banks and with my hand in my hand and said will you loan me money and finally found a banker that said yeah I'll, I'll take a chance on you and um, uh and I, within a year, I paid that loan off, and and my business was doing pretty well. That's awesome. So there you are with your family. So walk us through the next section of season of your journey. Oh, if we're talking about the business side of it, I guess the uh, uh, the, uh, the you know I started doing things that were really unusual. Um, Early on, uh, I was the first person in my industry, probably in any, any industry, to use the computer for inventory control. I uh, One of the things um, that I uh, did early on is when my son was very young, we put him on the swim team. And the coach of the swim team had a, a PhD in computer science. He actually had two PhDs. He had a PhD in physics and uh, one in computer science. And he was... He was an Air Force. He was a military guy, and he got all his schooling in the military. And but he wanted to teach kids how to swim. And uh, again, being a small town, everybody talks to everybody. And uh, yeah, I know you live in Decatur, and I know Decatur is probably a similar sized town to Woodland, California. And uh, yeah, you probably know most of the people in Decatur. And yeah, and uh, uh, so that's. Uh, you know, he got to talking about what do I do? And he was very interested in it. He said, well, have you ever used, thought about using the computer for, for managing your inventory? I said, no, I never, never, never crossed my mind. And he started talking to me about the value of it. And, uh, and I said, well, that's really interesting. And um, this was back before uh, uh, personal computers at all. The only computers that anybody used were these big mainframes that were in, you know, big IBMs that printed out the, right. the cards, the little computer. And probably people people saw them today, they wouldn't even know what they were. <laughs> they were cards <laughs> with holes in. 
So this is really his secret. This is the innovation that really took him to um, to where he he had the ability even later in life in his in the wholesale. A sector that he was so successful in, he allowed and and himself to learn. He was a lifelong learner. And hey, there's a new thing called a computer inventory. Don't know a lot about it, but uh, have someone that that I know that does, and I'm going to learn and I'm going to apply. What a great leadership principle! Be innovative, be a lifelong learner, learn, but then execute. Um, great wisdom here from Barney. And so, my first form of inventory control in my store was a. Um, shoebox filled with inventory cards, and each I had an inventory card for each item I carried, and uh, I used that to print out my uh, the, all the inventory I carried in the order that I needed to have it, so to to, to make an order from my suppliers, mm. and um, it gave me a level of inventory control, and it gave me an efficiency in ordering that none of my competitors had. And even though I didn't have any competitors in Woodland, I started getting a reputation in surrounding towns of being a place where you knew you could get something. That one of the big problems in the record business is, or was, because the record business is not the same anymore, uh, when something got hot, everybody ran out of it because it generally took, you know, a week or to two weeks to get to get supply of, of something. So if a, a record took off and became a hit, uh, a common thing would be that stores would be out of it and, and people who wanted it would go from store to store looking for it. And uh, slowly customers came to the realization that if they checked my store first, I was most likely to have it. And um, wow. Um, and it was that I did so much better job of inventory control than anybody else. Uh, uh, the uh, the two towns near me there was Sacramento, which was a fairly good sized town, and then the other big town near me is Davis. So most people have heard of Davis, California, because there's a university there, and that was about eight miles away. Um, so I guess the next big thing in, in 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 my business chapter was I decided to open a second store in Davis because I came to the conclusion that every person in Davis, particularly the college students, who wanted a record of you know, only one out of every 20 or 50 or something would, would, would get in a car and drive eight miles to one. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I decided to open a second record store in 1977. Wow. And uh, that did really well, too. That did better than really well. I mean, that did really, really well. Uh, are you still using and now in 77 are we still doing the uh inventory system the innovative inventory system that, that you did in the other store we are we but by that time we had uh, by the time 1977 came out uh, came about we had gone from um having to use the ibm mainframes to something called mini computers <laughs> and these were um we had a brand, it was called uh, Ohio Scientific. There were three or four brands back then. Gateway had some, I can't remember who all had. These were, this was back before IBM came out with the PCs. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> oh, Commodore had a computer. Commodore had a, uh, anyway, so these were, uh, and uh, the information instead of being stored on uh Punch cards, the information was stored on what was called floppy disks. And yep. so, so we, we, we bought one of those computers and used floppy disks. And it was a lot faster for data input. 
and then I could press a button and get out any report I wanted, as opposed to loading all the cards up in my shoebox. And by this time, it was three or four shoeboxes of cards. I mean, you know, a big stack of, of, uh, of these cards and having to take them to Sacramento. I, I remember it was uh, the Almond Growers Exchange. I, I had to go to the Almond Growers Exchange to use their computer. Goodness they, gracious. <laughs> they rented me time on their computer. So, uh, so, but it was a secret. I mean, nobody outside of me and my coach even knew what a computer was hardly. I mean, the only people that knew what computers were, 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 you know, ultra nerds or people that worked in very large companies. Right. Or right. People that worked for NASA or, you know, I mean, the average person had no idea what a computer was and it, computer technology hadn't yet come to the retail sector. So nobody was using computers to do retail tasks. Right. Um, but I was using the computer to organize uh, my inventory. And uh, it, it did give me a, a tremendous competitive advantage. So, you know, today in my current business life, I'm a business consultant. And uh, one of the questions I ask my clients is, what do you do that's a competitive advantage? Mm, so that's a great question, Barney. That, yeah. Uh, uh, it, uh, it, it's a... Um, it's something that a business owner should be aware of for sure. And should emphasize and anything you can do to get, I'm not talking about an unfair competitive advantage. No. Right. You know, so that was yours back in 1977. This store is taking off now with the floppy disk. Tell it, let's stay on the business track. Let's hear this business story uh, unfold so that you're there. It's, it's doing well. Both businesses are doing well. What happens next? Well, I opened up store three and store four, um, partly because it was fun. I liked opening up stores, partly because my suppliers changed the rules that in order for me to keep getting my favorite price, it was cheaper to buy directly from Warner Brothers than to buy through a middle. Wow. Okay. So how many employees did you have at that time? Oh, with the three stores, I probably had... 50, 60 employees. Wow, Barney. 60 employees. You're by now, let's see, you're in your 30s and and you're you're a successful entrepreneur. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I think I was successful from the day I opened my record store, actually. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. It, it, it depends what you how you wanted to find success. But yeah, I I was I was successful. What do you, how do you define success, Barney? Just curious. Oh, um, I mean, number one would be, you know, meeting your goals. I mean, mm. it, so it, it, uh, success would be, would be a, a personal, uh, obviously you, you would, um, you know, it would probably include, you know, having enough money and having enough, of the things you want in life. I think a lot of people think in terms of, I want so much money, I want a nice house, uh, uh, stuff like that. Uh, I just think that's that's a small part of the deal. <laughs> I love it. You're right. It's a small part of the deal. I love that. All right. So you're in the 80s. You have these three stores, 60 employees. We're on the business track now. What happens next? Uh, well, I'm getting more and more attention. I had one other innovation that was pretty big, and it's important because uh, it really – uh, fuel the success of my stores, and that is I sold used records. So um, you, 
uh, nobody in the United States was selling used records when I started selling them. Uh, and I got into it by accident. Um, you know, so many things, you know, they just, so many uh, uh, opportunities come unexpected. <laughs> uh, and sometimes they come from adversity. And this opportunity came from adversity. I got into a, um, a situation where I had negative cash flow and was having trouble paying my, my suppliers. And, uh, and I, you know, I didn't want to go back into debt. And uh, I came to the conclusion that, uh, um, so by that time I had probably a personal record collection of 25,000 records, uh, um, most of which I never listened to. <laughs> and, Goodness. Uh, I came to the conclusion that I could take those to the store and sell them. And I could, you know, liquidate some of my record collection and raise money that way. So pay attention here. Barney actually, you know, he got himself in, in a bit of a fix financially, but he was innovative. He, he said, you know, what do I have? What can I do? What else can I do? He asked the question. He found he had some records that were used in his collection. Uh, he said, I'm going to sell those. And that leads to his big breakthrough. Um, great leaders aren't afraid of uh, innovation and trying new things. And they asked that question, what else can I do? The, the business value of it was tremendous because at that time, records were sealed in plastic. And uh, if you bought a record and opened it, a record store would not take it back uh, because it was used. Uh, so that meant that you really couldn't guarantee the record against anything but what we call defects. You know, if the record was defective, we would take it back. But if you bought it and took it home and didn't like it, well, that's too bad. Uh, but the great thing about used records is they were open. So mm -hmm. what we did is we guaranteed used records 100%. We said, buy this record, take it home. If you don't like it, bring it back, and we'll take it back and give you full credit for something else. My goodness. Wow. And, and people loved that. And uh, used records became a very large part of my business. Man, that's, that's brilliant. So if you don't like it, Bring it back, but swap it for something else. Get get another record. Yeah, that's a great business plan. So that that used record, did that? Did you do that in all your stores? Was this across? I did, and, and it was in Davis where it was such a hit. I mean, it's college students just loved it. I mean, many college students are on budgets, and so they could buy a used record for three dollars instead of a new record for eight dollars. So that's right. better. And they could, you know, they could listen to things and try it. And a lot of them, and I encourage them. I'd say, buy 10 records, take them home, listen to them, listen to all of them. And the ones you don't like, bring them back. I love it, Barney. So keep, keep talking. I need to, I need to hear this journey. Now you got my interest here. Here you are with used records yet again, uh, a brilliant uh, business uh, business model. That is, I would have people come from a hundred miles. I had people coming from the Bay area, uh, San Francisco area to um just to my store just to see what new records i put out that day i had people i had people coming from 50 to 100 miles away to my store every day just to see what new records we were putting out because often they could find things that they couldn't find anywhere else unbelievable that's uh, unbelievable so how long were you in this uh record business how, how long did did you continue to build this business but I would, um, my appetite for opening more stores, I, I'm a very hands-on kind of guy. I believe in a very personal record store. And uh, one of the things that bothered me about having four stores is I felt like we were starting to lose our personal touch. And so I think mm. the, 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 um, the, my journey of opening up store after store after store was 
over probably. Um, uh, I just didn't have, I mean, out of the two stories that I started with, Woodland and Davis, I could have made a remarkable living. I mean, uh, the amount of profit I was making in those two stories was far beyond anything I needed to live. And I was yeah. very happy. Uh, uh, but my desire to grow has was always there. It's still there. I mean, I still have it. So, yes, you do. Um, uh, and uh, one of the things that kept me going was technology kept improving. And uh, in the early 80s, uh, we introduced a, um, a technology that didn't come out of the record industry. It started in the grocery business, but uh, it was uh, it was UPC codes. So uh, the, the UPC codes were put on the um, on the albums. And I remember it was a real fight between um, the manufacturers who wanted the UPC codes and all the musicians who thought the UPC codes defaced the record. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't like. Oh wow! They didn't like having that UPC code on their piece of art. Right. Uh, That's right. <laughs> so uh, interesting. And, uh, yeah. Um, but I was a fan of it because it 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 allowed us to take a huge step forward instead of me writing down what I had written, what I had sold, and then recording it into an inventory book, I could scan it with a wand or, you know, a laser oh, yeah. scanner. And it would go right into my ordering program. And, uh, and I still was working with my swimming coach, and he was still writing computer code for me. And, um, and we built a program for inventory control that hooked up to a cash register. So I was the first person in my industry to have a, a cash register that scanned the product. Mm. And, uh, and I had to build my own database. You know, uh, we had to tell a computer what you were carrying. You had to tell it in language the computer understood. So I had to build all that. And, um, and I started selling that. People noticed it and other people would come along. Tower Records didn't do it, but I mean, other smaller record stores would come to me and say, man, would you sell me your system? So, uh, in the early 80s, I uh, enlisted, uh, I had three satellite customers who used my inventory system, my point of sale system, and they ordered their inventory from me. How about and, that? And I liked it because this allowed me to get a lot more attention from my suppliers. So, somebody like at Warner Brothers or, or Columbia Records, which is now Sony, uh, they, they, uh, you know, they, the amount of attention they gave you depended on how much product you ordered. And so the more product you ordered, the more they'd call on you, the more they'd give you tickets to nice things, the, you know, the right. more things for you. And uh, I like it. I mean, I, I like going to concerts. One of the big perks about being in the record business is you go to go hear, you know, music for free. You get on the, you get on the guest list for any show you wanted, pretty much. And uh, the bigger you are, the you know the more likelihood you have of getting on the guest list of any show you want to go see. So that's amazing. Uh, a guy like me who loves music, you know, it's like a kid in the candy store. Hey, I can go hear any concert in the world I want just by asking the label of the artist if they put me on the guest list. And um, uh, so. Uh, I, I liked it, and I, so I started selling records out of my warehouse to stores that were not affiliated with me. In other words, they not, I didn't own them, but I had a contractual relationship to be their supplier. And by that time, 
record companies were no longer taking on individual stories as accounts. So to get an account right. with a with a Warner Brothers, you would have to be a chain. Got it. So now here we go. You're you're entering into the wholesale business, and it exploded, huh? Well, it, it didn't explode overnight. I wasn't pushing hard on it. I was running my retail stores, and I did this this. Uh, wholesaling on the side. I had three wholesale accounts in 1984. And in the year 1984, someone walked into my record store and said, I'd like to buy your store. And I said, no, not interested. And then he said to me, magic words, he said, I'll pay you whatever you ask. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And what did you say? I said, let me think about that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, and uh came back to him the next day and said here's i do it and i said you gotta i got three stores you gotta buy all three of them and uh and you gotta agree to buy your records from me going forward as i'll be your supplier and and here's how much money i want and the guy said all right i'll write you a check my goodness my God. and just like that, you're out of the retail business and in the wholesale business. On 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 December 31st uh, in the evening, I handed in the keys. Yeah. So on January 1st of 1985, I had no retail business. My goodness. Okay, so now you're in the wholesale. What happens? And I yeah, I mean, I I took the money, I paid off my house, I um, I put aside money for my kids college education i took the rest of the money and put it into this wholesale business and uh and i started looking for customers and then on day one i got customers by getting in my car and driving to everybody within 50 miles of me and saying interested in buying records wholesale so i'd go to every record store in every town and ask them if they wanted to buy from me wow and how big did that get uh, barney how how like at your peak how big was your wholesale business well, we went public in 1999. So from 1985 to 1999, uh, 13 years plus a little bit, um, I went from basically zero, or close to zero, to a billion dollars in sales. A billion with a, a billion, B. Wow. With a billion dollars in sales. I doubled almost every year. And um, on the year we went public, I had 22,000 customers. Wow. Basically, every record store in the United States and, and Europe bought from me. And um, um, all the chains bought from me. <laughs> My largest customer is Amazon. Wow. By far. I mean, they're by far my largest customer. And um, Amazing, Barney. Now, are you kidding me? I mean, here you are. Every every retail store, literally in this country and across and many across the world. Uh, so that made you one of the largest, if not the largest, wholesale music um, business in the world. By, huh? by far, the largest wholesaler of music in the world. Wow! By far. So, Barney. All right, time out. Just for a minute. You're, you've got this. You've got, I have a successful public offering with a major underwriter with uh, J.P. Morgan. Okay. You went public. You're in a billion dollars in sales. What does this do to your psyche? Who is Barney now? This 26-year-old that started this vision. Now we're here uh, in 1999. 
with with going public, uh, twenty two thousand customers. I mean, Amazon. What does that do to you? What? Who are you at this point in time when when you've achieved this this pinnacle of your career? Oh golly. Um... Well, it's the good of it and the bad of it. I, I think all along the way, on the good side, I, I think I learned. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong avid learner. So, uh, uh, you know, and, and I'm, 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 I'm quite introspective. I don't know what the best word for this is, but uh, I'm, I'm very willing to look at myself and say, here's areas I need to improve. Here's things I need to learn. Uh and all along the way, I did what I thought I had to do to become a better business person, a better boss. Um, about two or three years into this wholesale venture, I just I came to the conclusion I had no clue how to be a boss. So I took some courses on management. I came to the conclusion I had no clue how to organize things. So I took some courses on, on organization. Uh, lifelong learner. He he knew what he didn't know, and he went and he found out, and he he studied and he researched and he grew. And that's what great leaders do. Five six years into it, I came to the conclusion I didn't know enough about business concepts, things like how to read a financial statement, and you know some of the more macro business things. And so I I went to a executive education program at Harvard. It's sort of their equivalent of an MBA. It's, it's an MBA topic for for people who already own their own businesses. It's not it's not a, a traditional MBA. They call it an executive MBA. That's great! Uh, wow. So uh, I accumulated a ton of great experiences. Uh, I think I got one heck of a lot better at, at business. I mean, I think I went from being having a good nose for it, but being very green. To, I don't think I've ever lost a good nose for business, uh, but I, I would no longer call myself very green. I, I'd say I, I know as much about how to own and operate a business as almost anybody. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't meet people that know more about it than I do. I mean, I, I, I meet people who know lots of things I don't know, but you know, how do you start a business? How do you grow a business? How do you run a business? How do you get it to thrive? I, I think I'm an expert at that. Well, I think you are too. In fact, your courses that you've developed are incredible. We're going to put in the show notes how to get in touch with you uh, and your and your consulting company. Because look, who wants to have a consultant that hasn't really done anything and they just want to talk about it? You've done it. You've lived it. You've created you know, the world's largest wholesale pre-recorded music in the world. I think you know a little bit about starting companies as an entrepreneur. And uh, so now at this season of your life, you're giving back in terms of creating these courses and walking with leaders. I've heard the results of some that you have helped and, and helped to kickstart and manage and grow. And so you are, uh, you know, now you've, if you, if you go full circle, Barney, now you're all the way back to using your education degree, maybe not an elementary, but maybe an elementary an elementary business, you know, guys and gals that are trying to learn this thing and, and trying to grow uh, here you are. Uh, helping them running business support groups and things that they need and try to help them accomplish their goals. But, but you're doing it with common sense and you're doing it with a practical approach. Why is that? Because you've lived it. You've been there. That's an amazing story. It's an amazing story. Most, most business consultants have never owned and operated a business. So that, yeah, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah. 
<laughs> that does make a difference. You, you raise an interesting point. You know, an 18 or 22-year-old who comes to work for you, in, in terms of their work experience and their work skills, they are like an elementary school child because they, they really don't know anything about how the business world works. And they, unless they've got a very unusual set of parents, they probably haven't learned the do's and don'ts of how to go to work. That's right. And, and so a good employer would... would you know, you don't want to belittle people by making by making fun of them, but a good employer would assume that an 18 or 20 year old who's coming to work for you needs to be shown everything. And, you know, and, and 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 taught. And it, it'd be, you know, I I I I think everybody should uh, do that for their, their I do too. They, they should not assume that employees know what to do when they come into work. They probably, I don't. agree. I agree. Barney, um, I hope that, that our listeners will take advantage of that and, and take a look in the show notes and learn more about you and your, in your consulting business. Cause it's so valuable, but we got to close this thing down. And, and before we do, I want to ask, I want to ask you to think about, we've talked about these young leaders, We've talked about these young people coming out and maybe even they, maybe someone's not so young. Maybe they just decided, Hey, I want to give this business thing a try. But for these aspiring leaders, what two or three tips would you say? These are some essential things, just two or three things about leadership, about leading yourself and leading others. Here are two or three things you need to know. What would you say to them? Okay. So my, my, my general piece of advice for someone starting a business is market every day. Yeah. You have to tell your story if you're going to succeed in business and you have to tell it over and over and over again, mm. market every day. So uh, 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 you ask for two or three things, a leadership thing, uh, whether you're a business owner or just an employee, I think successful people are people who get really good at, knowing what they don't know. That's great. Um, that's just uh, so many people walk around acting like they know things they don't know. It's just the world's just so much easier. It's so much easier to deal with people if they just say, yes, I know this. And no, I don't know that. It, and it'd be, it'd be good if you know what you don't know. One more general piece of advice is uh, people that win in business are people that are good at getting things done. So it's not a question of how smart you are, how clever you are, how good you look. The only thing that counts in business, are you good at getting stuff done? Wow. So if you want to win in business as an owner, as an employee, as anything, you want to win in life, you've got to get good at getting stuff done. Arnie, I feel like I'm I'm sitting here learning from the professor and you're giving us these incredibly good tips. And, uh, I, you know, if we could just apply those three things, learn how to tell your story, you know, get good at knowing what you don't know and and get good at executing, get good at getting things done. That's amazing. Those are those are three uh, incredible tips. And for all of us to take, I, I want to thank you for sure. taking some time to be with us today. You, you're an amazing, amazing person on, and just chock full of wisdom and knowledge and experience. You've done it you've made it happen. And, uh, and now you're, you're giving back, helping others to make it happen. Thank you, Barney. Thank you for sure. your time. Thank you for who you are. And, uh, I appreciate you so much for being on crossing the line today. Well, you're welcome. I love doing it. Uh, and, uh, I, I care about your family too. So, uh, that, 
that means an awful lot. I know you do. And you've proven that as well, investing in them. And and thank you for that leadership too. You're welcome. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. Um, Barney Cohen, what an incredible entrepreneur, but who understands about people? Uh, Here is an example of someone who truly led with his head and his heart to become who he is today. And he still does that. He, he understands the importance of people. And he's showing that by even at, at this season of life, when he could be doing anything he wanted to do, he is con- consulting and investing in young leaders and, and young business owners, helping them, teaching them with courses and other things. Uh, he has lived it. He's, he's lived it. And he's been a bit untraditional about it, going to work early in life and, um, and becoming very, very successful not just financially, uh, but in terms of understanding what leading well is really all about. I hope you enjoyed this session. I hope you enjoyed hearing Barney's story. I hope that it helped you to continue your journey to cross that line, to lead with your head and your heart in order to make a difference in the lives of those you live with and those you lead and those you love. Thanks, and we look forward to seeing you, hearing you, having you again on the next edition of Crossing the Line.